This is a call to all current and aspiring entrepreneurs. How you market your business can be the difference between whether or not you succeed online. But don't worry, we're here to help with current strategies, tips, and tricks that you can apply to your online business or business idea. This is the EMJ Podcast with your host, Matt Hepburn. This is episode five of the EMJ Podcast, and I'm your host, Matt Hepburn. I hope you're sitting down because today we are joined by the co-founder of SparkToro and Moz, the one and only Rand Fishkit. So buckle up. This is going to be good. Welcome to the show, Rand. Great to be here, Matt. Thanks for having me. Oh, it's a pleasure. It's a pleasure. So um, I was hoping uh, I'm going to just jump right into it. Uh, wanted to ask you, what was the motivation that you had to start SparkToro? Lo- uh, love you love know that but there's this there's this uh semi-famous scene i think it's from one of the first uh few seasons of the simpsons mm-hmm. where you know homer is having a conversation with someone and inside is his brain you can hear this voice saying don't say revenge don't say revenge don't say revenge revenge that's it i'm out of here <laughs> this is this is often how i <laughs> how i think about the answer of uh answer that question um part of that is like it's it's not necessarily revenge against someone else but there you know after my experience at Moz, there was a small but influential um group of people who i think did not believe uh that i had good judgment or that believed that my whatever relative degrees of success with that company were by chance and and not by making good decisions or or um some other element of the work that i'd put in um and I've, i very much wanted to prove that group wrong and i think probably even more than that group of people i wanted to prove it to myself yeah i can see that yeah I can see that. um i have to say that uh Having been in SEO for you know 13 plus years, you were a very founding part of of you know Whiteboard Fridays for sure. You know, so um, so thank you for that. Regardless, yeah. um, you you were very helpful um, and brought a lot of things into focus for the industry, regardless of what other people think. Yeah. So. Well, I mean, look, I I don't think you know I don't think my board of directors and investors thought that my contributions to the educational prowess of the SEO field were subpar. Um, but I, I certainly think that they uh, did not take my recommendations on strategy or tactics in, you know, company approach, philosophy around the market, what what, what I thought professional SEOs needed from software, what I thought the company should be doing. That That's what really frustrated me. Um, so I, yeah, I want to be clear, right? They didn't, I don't think they they would not have said no, Matt. Those whiteboard Fridays were terrible. That's that was not their contention <laughs> yeah. at all. Right, right. Uh, no, they were. Gr- I think they were great. Um, actually, and when I was at one of the larger agencies that I was at, I won't say the name of them, but um, uh, actually, well, Martindale Hubble. When I was at Martindale Hubble, um, there was fifteen SEO analysts, and we would all gather in a room on Fridays to watch those. So yeah. Yeah, um, I, I heard that from so so many folks, and it really um, 
it really made my day. You know, Matt, I'll I'll tell you one of my one of my worst days ever, um, professionally for sure, probably personally too, was uh, February twenty eighth of twenty eighteen. That that was my last day at Moz. Mm-hmm. You know, go in, get all your stuff from the office, answer your last few emails, set up your out of office, not out of office, right? Out, out of employment, um, you know, message, which I'm, I'm sure someone overwrote the next day. But uh, I then, you know, packed up all my stuff into a little box and and left the company that I started se- 17 years before that. Um, yeah, just a rough. That had to be heartbreaking. Yeah, rough, rough day. And one of the best days I ever had. Uh, was March 1st of 2018 because that morning, so I'd written a blog post the the night before. I think it was called my my last day at Moz, my first day at SparkToro. Um SparkToro technically didn't didn't raise money and like kind of get going until June, but I had the website going and I, you know, I had an idea of what we what I hoped I wanted to do with this audience research software. And so um which I came up with after 5 p.m. on Feb- on February uh, 28th, uh, just in case any lawyers ask you. <laughs> right. What? When did Rand come up with the idea for SparkToro? After 5 p.m. on February uh, 28th. And <laughs> um, and that that night when I published that blog post, you know, I went to sleep. Um, not probably not my best night of sleep ever. But then I woke up to so many thousands of messages. You know, from folks like yourself who told stories exactly like that, right? Like, hey, yeah. me and my team, we gather around, we watch Whiteboard Friday, we use Moz's software to track our rankings, you know, before there was any other rank tracker out there. And right. we, you know, we learned this from you, blah, blah, blah. Like, you helped my career in all these different ways. Yeah. I had so many messages like that, um, that I think by took me almost two full weeks to get through them all. Um, and by the time I did, I think I came around to the idea that. Moz may not have been uh, a success from its investors' point of view or or for shareholders, which I still to this day feel terrible about. But I, I think it helped a lot of people, and maybe that's maybe that's actually more important. Maybe that's better. Yeah, that, that still had to be really hard those first two weeks of going through those messages. Oh no, I mean it was it was amazing, Matt. I I hope everyone in their career gets something like that. I, yeah. I swear to God, I, you know, half the days just by lunchtime, I was crying. It was yeah. Some of those stories are um beyond beautiful. Just you know, just incredible people who who talk about like, hey, I was a college dropout and I had, you know, whatever, some addiction problems and I had, you know, whatever family issues, that kind of stuff. And and like SEO, digital marketing kind of saved me because it gave me a direction and I could do these things and without I think for a ton of those people, right, when they when they wrote to me, what the feeling that I got was not, oh, it's because of my work or our work that they accomplished these things. I think those people would have found great stuff from lots of people on the internet. Right. They happened to find our stuff. It ended up being useful to them and put them on the right path. Um, I feel awesome about that. But yeah, for, it's uh, for me, I transitioned from the mortgage industry. I was doing direct oh, mail. Yeah. For 13 years, I did about 10,000 pieces of mail per month. And in 2008, when the market just died, right, I stayed into about 2010. Yeah. Everybody was underwater. 
uh, the ROI on the marketing didn't make any sense anymore. But when I, I basically said, how do I take this engagement that I have? Because my phones were ringing all the time prior to the, the crash. I said, how do I take this online? What does that mean? Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and finding your content uh, was extremely helpful to give me a, and and I, I said, you know, I was going on the, the larger tenant of uh, putting your message out to a large amount of people, you'll get a larger, you know, conversion and all that type of stuff. It, and it, of course, was not anything like direct mail, but uh, it was fascinating. And because there was a lot of other content out there that was not good, uh, I gravitated towards your content. So uh, certainly, I mean, this is this is one of the recommendations I have for all early stage entrepreneurs is is choose a sector where you can stand out. Yeah, right. Because SEO is a place where there was a lot of um, questionable content when I started in 2002, three. And, you know, by the time by the time Moz was mature, you know, 2012, 13, 14, I think that industry was already incredibly difficult. You know, if I tried to build an SEO software company and and build up the community that we had and the content that we had and the rankings and mm-hmm. all that kind of stuff, the traffic, that would have been an incredibly difficult task at that point. Um, market timing, you know, matters. And, and choosing, I think, choosing a market that can anticipate growth, also huge. So... With that, let's switch to the business audience research market because um, I think there's a lot there, right? Um, so what you, you said at, at five o'clock afterwards, you you came up with a, the beginning of the seed of this idea, right? Yeah. Um, how did that grow, and and what kind of led you to thinking about that uh, versus because that's a completely different direction than most marketing or SEO type of software that is out there. I think it's genius for a lot of different reasons, but what kind of led you down that path towards uh, saying, you know, I, I I want to find this information for people? Yeah. Uh, so my co-founder and I, Casey and I, you know, had this experience where we we started talking to a lot of folks about this like general concept. I think in the early days of SparkToro, we called it audience intelligence, right? Mm-hmm. Just this idea of knowing more about a group of people online, in particular, their behaviors and demographics. Like what... What do they read and watch and listen to and follow and subscribe to and who are they and you know what's their the composition of you know percentages of of different genders or ages or geographies, um, job titles like all that all that kind of stuff, right? Which we all do, right? We all do some form of like, oh, I'm gonna try and understand my audience better. Let me let me see if I can get a sense for who they are. And then for some people, right, a lot of market researchers, they try and put statistics against that. So we were like looking at this field and it is dominated, almost entirely was dominated, still is actually, you know, it's probably a multi-billion dollar market, but but completely dominated by surveys and interviews, Mm -hmm. which I don't have a problem with. I think surveys and interviews are great. I think almost everyone should be doing them. I think if you're going to start a business, you, you you should be interviewing the people who you think are your right customers, and um, you should be running some surveys at scale to try and you know get data from them and understand that market. You should be following lots of those people, having those conversations. That's all fantastic stuff. But uh, what we were shocked by is kind of the the loss of data that in 20th century marketing would have been essential. So like Matt, if you and I were running an ad agency and it's, you know, 1965 and 
I don't know, Coca-Cola comes to us and they say, hey, we want to, you know, expand more in the West Coast, we would tell them, oh, well, these magazines are well read by your target demographic, which tends to be, you know, whatever it is. I, maybe Coke would say to us, well, we find that our primary buyer is, you know, moms and dads between the ages of 30 and 45. I don't know what it is, but it's their persona. Right. And we would say, oh, well, we can tell you, you know, based on the market research, we, we have, you know, open up some giant binder of all the publications that reach that demographic group and right. we can tell Coke which ones they can buy from. You can't do it on the internet today, right? Like it's just, nope. <laughs> it, nope. doesn't, it doesn't exist. It, it uh, Anyway, that drove me mad. I thought that was insanity that this, this sort of, you know, well-worn, very thoughtful, reasonable marketing approach, maybe demographics is a bad way to do it. Right. Maybe instead, like today, you would want to say, hey, what I want is kind of the Facebook lookalike audience. I want you to show me people who have engaged with Coca-Cola's uh, brand. They've they've tweeted about it. They have followed them on one or more social accounts. They've posted Instagram pictures of it. They've used the hashtag. They, I don't know, subscribe to the YouTube channel. Like, I want you to tell me about that group of people and then tell me what else they do on the Internet so that I can go reach because if if they do those things other people who potentially would be engagers with the Coca-Cola brand probably do those things too and I can reach them there. And this you can't you, you can't do it. Like we were so we we talked to some big agencies. I don't know if um if your agency did this or the agencies you worked with but we talked to some big agencies who basically would sell their clients a one-time data analysis like this. So what they do is they'd be like, oh, okay, hey, you know, you want to understand what interior designers in California do on the internet. So we're going to go crawl 10,000 LinkedIn profiles of interior designers in, who say they're in California. And then we're going to go find all their Twitter accounts and their, I don't know, Reddit accounts and YouTube accounts, like the best that we can. And then we're going to deliver this document to you. It's going to cost you $250,000 cuz it's going to take about 6 months of our engineering, you know, two engineers are going to sit mm -hmm. on it, build crawlers, blah 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 blah. And and people were buying it. Wow. People were uh, buying it. And when Casey saw that, Casey's uh, my CTO and, and right. co-founder, he was like, "Wait, they they paid a quarter million dollars for that? I I can make that in 5 minutes." Like, "Wait, I can we we could build that for the whole internet." And you could get it by searching in, I think, three seconds. And that's exactly what SparkToro is, right? It's essentially you go to SparkToro and you say, show me people who've, mm -hmm. I don't know, posted about Coca-Cola or, you know, say they're an interior designer and are located in California. And then here's this giant group of data about it. And so, you know, it's so, so what for the listeners, what they may not understand for what you've just explained, uh, if they're trying to do positioning, you could actually use a competitor that's similar within yeah. the niche for cola or whatever it might be, find out where they are and expand further outwards, right? And then you're really getting uh, competitive analysis about where your niche is, where your competitors are, where it's being mentioned, and now you can target your where your competitors are. So I think it's in that aspect and for positioning. Um, and I, I don't remember the woman's name it was on Spark Together. 2022 oh. it was about uh april all, dunford probably yes it was all about positioning i thought she was absolutely brilliant uh yeah she's incredible but, but uh yeah 
Um, yeah, I could see her using that information right there for that. So sure. Yeah. I mean, so a lot of this is let me gain a deep understanding of the market so that I can answer all kinds of questions. Which, which channel should we participate in? Which tactics, which specific um you know, YouTube channel should I go advertise against or or pitch? And how should I target my you know, content? What should I write about? What should I create content about? Um, and then also, yeah, those bigger picture strategy kinds of questions like market positioning certainly could be, I wouldn't say you could just take the data in SparkToro and then have an answer to that, but you you should use the data that's in SparkToro or another product like it to uh, inform yourself so that your answer will be better to that question around, you know, right. who am I for and why and what what's my unique value proposition to that market? Exactly. And yeah. Yeah. And then at the same time, if they're doing uh podcast interviews, you know, uh what podcasts can I actually um pitch to actually go on, uh, which is a much or better sponsor way, or sponsor or and, and it's a much better way of getting uh links to your website, which will actually help your SEO strategy than I mean, I don't know anything about this SEO thing you're talking about, Matt, yeah, yeah, but yeah. <laughs> I can speak to the rest of it. Okay. So um, so I, I think you just actually answered one of my questions. I was going to actually uh, ask, uh, you know, how hard was the tech stack to build and did you have any challenges with that? Um, yeah. To, to build it? Because it's not, even though he was saying he could do that in three, you know, three minutes or whatever, you yeah. have to scale this for how many, you know. You know, no. you know it's 10,000 or whatever users you have now, right? I don't remember how many users you have, but um, um, yeah, you have to scale it for it to, to hold all that and then keep the, the speed. Totally. Yeah. So uh, you can't, you can't do this on demand, right? So you, what you, what you could not do is say, oh, well, when you come to me and say you're interested in whatever interior designers in California, or you are trying to sell your, you know, CRM software to, um, chief marketing officers, you know, at, at tech startups or something, we couldn't go at that moment and then say, okay, hold on just a second. We're going to go crawl all the platforms, try and find all the people, try and connect up the profiles then, and then do the analysis. You, you have to collect it in the background, right? You've got to constantly be crawling the web and aggregating this data and anonymizing it, right? Cause there's right, GDPR. technically, yeah. technically we could legally show the the people who are in the cohort like you know um software like lead fuse does this it's quite good i i like it a lot of people use it for lead gen but we did not want to we wanted to be anonymous um and aggregated so we we don't tell you hey here's you know 6412 interior designers in california or 12000 cmos in the us and here's their contact information we we don't do that we instead say, here's 12,000 CMOs, and here's their aggregate behavior. 17.2% of them do this thing. 12% of them have this you know, feature, trait, or behavior. So all of that has to happen behind the scenes, which essentially, for us, it's about a 120-day crawl and process to you know, grab the, I think we have about 90 million public profiles. Um, e each of those profiles can have up to 12 no, 13 um, different networks or websites that they're associated with. So it might be like, oh, here's Matt Hepburn's like LinkedIn and here's your Twitter profile and here's your Facebook page and here's your you know, Instagram and here's your uh, Reddit account and your YouTube page and your GitHub and your Quora and Medium, da, 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 da. And that's one profile in our index, right? And your website and podcasts, like those are 
all part of that profile. And so we'd say that's one profile in our index. And we've got like about 90 million of those. We're English only. So that helps make the internet a little smaller for us. Um, I love it. You're, you're actually doing Google entities. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So the right. same, like Google is doing this already right. and they can show you this information. It's just that they don't, they don't aggregate it and then present it in this way. Mm-hmm. So, you know, from a nice, like from a legal and privacy standpoint, what we do is exactly what Google does. We just present the data in a different fashion. Um, and actually Google gives far more personally identifiable information than, than SparkToro does. Right. So we try and stay safe that way. So I, I think it's really smart the way you did it because by making it anonymous, it doesn't open you up to GDPR, privacy, you know, all the personal yep. data stuff. So uh, and we had some good lawyers yeah, that we worked with who were like, yep. okay, this, you, you can do this, you can't do this, you know, you have to watch out for that. Mm-hmm. Um, and and thankfully, we were already on the very safe side of, yeah, in a lot of ways, if Google can access a thing, we can access it. If, if Google can't, we can't. If they can show the data, we can. So they, they've paved the way for us, which is mm-hmm. nice too. So, I, so I'm going to kind of switch gears a little bit. You've uh, talked candidly about venture capital and lost and founder and kind of how there can be this misalignment in between the founder and the VC uh, firm. Um, and I actually love the fact that you're keeping SparkToro uh, investor free. It's on your video, on your homepage. Love that. Um can you explain to uh, the listeners and any budding founders the benefits of staying um, venture capital free? Yeah, 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 yeah. So we, um, I mean, <laughs> how do I do that in a short fashion? <laughs> the list of benefits is long. So I, I think a, a good way to explain it is, is for folks who don't quite understand who how institutional capital works, right? They, you know, if you and I are VCs, uh, we start, you know, Matt and Rand, I don't know, enterprises, and and we go out to LPs, limited partners, from whom we raise money. Those are people like pension funds or um, university endowments or wealthy individuals, very, you know, ludicrously wealthy individuals. And then we uh, essentially t- say, okay, we're going to take, let's say, 100 million of your dollars, and we're going to ve- invest in 500 companies. And here's how generally statistically speaking that model is going to work 480 of those companies are going to go bust they're going to they're going to return nothing they're going to return like less than you know the amount we invested in them we're going to generally lose money on them then of the 20 remaining companies about 15 are going to return somewhere between 3 and 5x our investment we'll make some money on them We'll see, you know, we'll see how things go. The remaining 10, maybe remaining five, that's where we make all our money because they are going to be worth a thousand times more than what we invested in them for. We're, you know, they're going to return a huge amount of uh, capital to us. And so venture capital and and private equity for that matter um, are essentially tools for, um, inequality, right? Like it, right, right, right. <laughs> a few winners, lots and lots of losers. And, and of course, everybody who pitches for venture and doesn't get it, they, they, they don't do so well either. Uh, and the requirement, of course, is once you and I invest in one of these companies, we're not looking for them to, right? If the, if the founder, the CEO, 
the executive team says to us, hey, we're going to pull back on growth. The market's uncertain right now. Mm-hmm. We just kind of, you know, we're going to stay alive and profitable um, and see where things take us the next few years. We're going to tell them, no, no, you're not. That is not what we signed up to do. You are going to use all the capital that you have and and your hardest effort and every hour you can squeeze out of every person on your team to grow as fast as possible or die trying. Those are the outcomes. We're not interested in your, hey, you know, we grew 20% last year and we kept our profit margins nice and, you know, we're building a a nice, solid, long-term business that can last for a while. Not interested. I don't care. You find a way to get to that, you know, 10x, 100x, or please just go away and leave our portfolio. We don't really have time to be on the board of companies that are profitable and growing slowly. Right. This is where the model gets really tough for I, I, you know, we say founders, but generally speaking, founders are actually the ones least affected by this. You know, who really bears the brunt is the team and the customers. Because if you think about those 480 companies that went out of business, all of their customers have no product anymore. If they built processes on top of their stacks, they're gone. They just vanished. All the people who work there, they, they can barely put it on their resume, right? They can say, well, I worked at this company, but it doesn't exist anymore. So I can't, you know, really show you anything. It's just a terrible time for everyone. And Moz, you know, my company was in the in the 15, but not in the five, right? Right. So Moz right. grew, you know, um, very quickly. It was, you know, doubling revenue year over year for for a bunch of years in a row and eventually went from, gosh, what were we doing? $600,000, $700,000 in revenue when we, when we raised investment to $50 million when I left um, a year. And, and it was still not a success. Right. Still not returning what its investors had promised to their LPs and what I had promised to my investors when I raised money from them. Um, yeah, man, it's uh, it's no that, good. That that's hard. In one part of your book, you were talking about the, uh, you know, if the um, if the company wants to sell and there was a mismatch as to like what X they had to make that the um, that the VC firm could just you know, veto the, the, the sale of anything. They can't. It's just, yeah. It, it's pretty rare that they do, to be honest. Um, it happens sometimes. I would say it's not, the hard veto is rarely exercised. It's, it's soft power and culture and incentives, right? It's essentially saying like, Matt, you have, I had this conversation, right? In, uh, what was it? Two, start of 2011. HubSpot just made you an offer. It's going to make you very wealthy. It's going to make your team very wealthy. It was for, 30-ish million dollars, $35 million, right? To 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 buy a company that was doing, you know, about six, seven million dollars in revenue. So a nice multiple on that, on that revenue number. You're going to join HubSpot. HubSpot itself is growing fast. You know, the the stock price obviously from 2011 to, mm-hmm. to, to 2023 right. is, you know, grown 500 x I don't even know. Uh but you know, you can't, you don't, you don't know that at the time. But the, you know, the conversation is, hey, your company's been doubling year over year. Next year, you're probably going to get an offer at twice that amount. Are you sure you want to sell now? Four years from now, you could get an offer for $100 million, $500 million. Are you sure you want to sell now? 
that's the kind of conversations, right? right? That it's not, and technically those conversations are true, right? right? They're not lying to you. It is, that is possible. And it's what they're hoping for, right? It's what you're hoping for. It's what you signed up to do. When you raised that money, you told them you were going to try to do that. So the question is, are you scared for the future and you're kind of backing out of your obligation and taking the money and go and running, or are you going to stick it out? Um, that, and that, that just, yeah, I, that sounds it's a hard. hard. Yeah. It sounds really hard conversation. Well, and you, you know, I, I had this, <laughs> I think like a lot of founders in order to have the, what my people would call the chutzpah, the chutzpah to believe that you might build, you know, a billion dollar company, uh, that you're that incredibly special, that in a field of tens of thousands of founders, you're better than almost all of them. You also probably have the chutzpah to believe that your company is going to be worth more next year and you should keep going and not sell early. And Okay. Yep. That, that's yep. that's fair. So um, can you give us uh, a few aha moments or breakthroughs that you've had in your career? Um, that, you know, the other, the, the other question that I, that, that, that kind of ties back into that too, is like, if you had a chance to go back and talk to your younger self and give your younger self some really great advice of what to do or what not to do, uh, how would you, can you connect the aha moments or the breakthroughs to, and like talking to your younger self and what that might be? Yeah. I mean, I think that one of them is the 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 worst part of failure and of failing to meet expectations is the emotional letdown that you are not um, as good as you thought you were. Um, but the beautiful thing, the beautiful thing about those failures is they they hopefully, um, you know, if you have any sort of emotional intelligence and empathy uh, for yourself or others, they lead you to a more humble place. Right. Right. You, you don't, you, you make fewer assumptions about how, you know, brilliant and outstanding and unique you are. And you start to realize that the, um, a huge amount of the world is driven by luck. Mm-hmm. Um, and almost no one in the entrepreneurial and business world um, wants you to believe that because they don't want to believe that about themselves, right? If right, for sure. You know, if Elon Musk gets on a stage and he said, "Me, I'm obviously nothing special. Look at the terrible, terrible decisions that I make every day. No, what I am is incredibly lucky." If you roll the dice of the you know model of late stage capitalism enough, you're going to get a few Elon Musks like me. We're not special or better than you. Not, there's nothing that makes us extraordinary. We're lucky. And, and then we use the luck that we've achieved to try and paint a rosy, as rosy a picture as we can to the sure. people around us and to ourselves about who we are. Uh, because, dear God, it's frightening to think that this was not earned through genius or expertise or labor um but is is a gift of the of the dice rolling model um so i that is certainly one of those things that mm-hmm. uh i think you know i eventually had that hard conversation with myself and and got myself there i got myself there that's not even right 
I, I read and understood lots of data from lots of smart people and eventually was able to internalize, um, probably thanks in part to uh, my failure with Moz, right? That, that, that That's the real way the world works. So humbling moments are, you know, we all have them. And as long as we can take away something from it and grow from it, they're, they're good um, in hindsight. They're hard and they're painful, but uh, we can grow from them. So um would love to hear uh your recommendations you could provide for any business who's struggling um or someone who's just starting in, in business what uh recommendations you would give them starting out and uh, that would be wonderful Matt that is that is a very broad question I I know well yeah I know you can niche it down so uh <laughs> I mean I can but yeah yeah uh all right uh, let's see I would say one of the best things that you can do before you start your business, before you build your product, is to build expertise and a network in your field. If lots of people who are in whatever the interior design industry already know you and like you and trust you, and they've seen good work from you at, because you, I don't know, worked at some other consulting firm or you were at some mm -hmm. other company or you were an interior designer yourself and you were influential in your field and lots of people read about your work and whatever. You will have a thousand times easier of a path um, setting up customer interviews, uh, building a good email list of prospects, knowing where to go target your market, uh, understanding what messages resonate with them and don't. Uh, leaning on people for feedback, talking to people about investment, a private investment if you want, right? It doesn't have to be venture. Um, getting help with, hey, do you know any good accountants who could, you know, assist me? Every every single process in your business will be vastly easier. And if instead you drop out of college and are like, I can do this, I'm going to be great. <laughs> oh man, every single step of the way is just a slog, just a slog. That. Um, a tremendous amount of any success that I've had in, in my previous company or this one uh, have been because I have a network of people who like me and and trust me and you know think I'm not the worst person ever and and are happy to jump on an hour long podcast and yep. you know chat about deep stuff with me and um, that. Well, I I can, it's hugely I can, meaningful. I, yeah, I I can totally agree with you. And and if if in case you didn't know, I I am also a college dropout. So uh, I went to um, Western State College in Colorado, uh -huh. um, and which is really far away from New Jersey, and <laughs> and uh, had no idea it was uh, considered in the top ten of the party schools in the U.S. Oh. And uh, so let's just say that semester I spent much more time partying than uh, studying. And by the end of that semester, I said, you know, what am I doing? I had a heart to heart with myself and I left college right there. I, you know, I didn't waste too much time and I just got right to it. But hmm. um, started. so working. I've read a bunch yeah. of analyses about how a huge perception of, you know, the value of college is supposedly right that that you learn things and those things will help you in your career and you know mm -hmm. by whatever you're doing your classwork or getting good grades or those kinds of things um but apparently uh partying as you put it uh statistically correlates with doing very well out of college and oh, uh 
It does. Um, and the, and the, the, the reasons that researchers who've looked into educational uh, feel about this is that the tragically, the, the primary, the two primary things that college seems to do for you is one, it's sort of an assortive um, qualifier, right? It tells other people who have gone to college that you are like them. And so therefore they should consider you for a job interview opportunity, whatever, what have you. Right. Uh, the, the second primary use case value for college is what I just talked about, a network of people who know you and like you. And partying is quite good for getting people to know you and like you, at least while you're young. I don't know about today, yes. but. So, so I, I decided, you know, uh, when I came back, I just, um, you know, these days we call it being agile, right? So I just, you know, change is going to happen to you no matter what happens. So you can either embrace it or you can bemoan it, right? So for me, it's, I always kind of embrace it and say, okay, where do I need to shift and how do I need to shift? What does that mean? Um, so uh, it's done well for me with that. And, you know, uh, some of the older generation, uh, you know, kind of don't understand that, you know, they're used to being in, in a job for years and years and years. They wouldn't understand what to do. Right. Or how yeah. to, uh, my dad how to uh, joined Boeing, I think the year I was born. So 1979 mm -hmm. and on his uh, 30 year, the week of his 30 year anniversary with his, with, with the company, he got his full pension and was like, okay, I'm done. And yeah, nobody, nobody has jobs like that anymore. No, no, my <laughs> That's dad, not how my, it works. My dad was similar. He worked, worked for, uh, for us air, uh, for 25 years yep. after, after the military and, uh, then retired. So those type of yep. jobs aren't there and those opportunities aren't there and, um, it's a different world. Right. So, yeah, absolutely. Um, so. Uh, I got one last question for you, and you've been so forthcoming and so transparent. We we love this. Um, so, what are your predictions for marketing for 2023? Ooh. What what does a business need to uh, focus on? Yeah, I mean, so my, I think these two are actually quite different. Like the interesting thing is, if you are starting a new business, if you are helping an early stage or a relatively small company out. Mm -hmm. Marketing hasn't changed all that much, especially not in the last like 12 months or two years or something like that. The tactics that you're probably familiar with, content creation and distribution, social media marketing, digital advertising, um, SEO, right? Uh, all of these kinds of things still relatively effective as long as you've got strength in the actual business right the the product is good you've chosen a good market you have a good unique value proposition your customers love what you're doing all, all those kinds of good things right M many of the marketing tactics have not changed the biggest change in the marketing industry uh that that we've been experiencing is really around in my opinion it is attribution versus measurement meaning that um so basically massive changes have been happening on the on the sort of tech and privacy stack and in the world of advertising wars. So Apple um, and other companies have kind of realized that the ad market is just absolutely beautiful. It's all margin. The only product you have to do is build a moat. So Apple is trying to build their own moat. And, and as a result, they've pulled a ton of data that Facebook um, and Google and Amazon and others used to get through third-party cookies. Google realized this too with Chrome. And so they're like, 
Yeah, yeah. Privacy. Privacy is important. No more third-party cookies. Uh, we're phasing those out. And as a result, you're you're losing out on the attribution. You know, what, what you and I are used to from, let's say, yep. especially 10 years ago, right? This person searched for this keyword in Google and they landed on this page of our website and they gave us their email address. And 60 days later, they became a customer. We yep. can attribute exact that whole conversion path to them searching Google and us ranking in position one for this keyword. Obviously, keywords are gone in Google nowadays. You can still see landing pages, but you can't measure that. Oh, they signed up for the email. And then how long did it take to, to uh, get them back? Well, if you have their email address, you could know. But if they just came to your website and then came back to your website 90 days later, you're not going to know. The cookies expired and all, all, all mm -hmm. this kind of stuff. The ability to target people through, you know, Facebook ads has gotten dramatically worse the last year because of this Apple change. So 30% of the devices, at least in the US, where Apple has approximately a 30% share, no longer do they by default uh pass, you know, basically the behavioral information about what you do on Facebook to the rest of the web and from the rest of the web back to Facebook. The EU just said, this is illegal entirely. Facebook can't do it at all. And not just Facebook, but TikTok and Reddit and YouTube and everybody else. And Google Analytics. And, and Google Analytics is illegal. And like, this is shaking things up massively in the space. So if you're a, you know, digital marketer, an agency, if you are consulting for folks, if you're working in a big company or, you know, a scaling startup, this thing is throwing a ton of the tactics um, and some of the channels out as directly attributable. And instead, you have to measure through Lyft, which means a lot of testing. You you know what we're back to, Matt? What we were talking about earlier. It's the 1960s and Coca-Cola yep. came to us and they said, run this ad in this magazine. And then we're going to see whether they sell more in the places where that magazine is distributed more and less in the places where it's not. That's how we're going to measure marketing again. Yeah, I, I'm using a lot more tracking pixel type of uh, software. So I'm using uh, Plausible Analytics, uh, which doesn't use any cookies, uh, totally GDPR compliant and uh, where it's at and where it stores data and all that type of stuff. So trying to be cognizant of uh, for the business. So, and that's the hard thing. The business has I mean, to learn, you know. My understanding this, I could be mistaken about this, but my understanding is it's not just the technology, it's the practice of, collecting behavioral data about what someone does on another website mm -hmm. and then being able to use that in your ad targeting that that is potentially on the chopping block and i and i think that rules out any technology that helps you do it it might actually go as far as how you segment your email list with tags right and because that's a that's a, an identifiable behavior of what a user has done they visited a page now you've tagged it as to whatever relevant is that page is the um while you do give them the opt out experience where they can opt out for that to remove that information we're not supposed to be having that information in the first place so it's questionable i mean I, my suspicion is the internet breaks if you actually take away that functionality entirely mm -hmm. but I think the my understanding of the EU's proposal was essentially this applies to advertising. Okay. So, you know, if you if you Amazon say, "Hey, the person visited their Amazon Web Services account page, um well, am I not allowed to now show the AWS, you know, navigation in their account?" 
Right. That's insane. How will they ever get there? Right. Like that stuff should still will remain legal. Right. But if you want to use that to advertise AWS services to them on Instagram, no go. No retargeting. Yeah. 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 No so anyway, that yeah. stuff is yep. that's what I think the big the big big changes that are happening right now. Yep, I I definitely uh, am in total agreement with that. I think it it you know I I'm hoping it's just the advertising section and it's not the email marketing um, tagging as well because that will yeah really- I mean I think it depends on what the email is about but you know what we don't have to speculate at some point. A bunch of expensive lawyers in Zurich will figure this out for us, <laughs> yes. and then we will know. Then we will know. But uh, for now, it sounds like it's just advertising. Um, well, uh, thank you so much, so much for coming on the show. Uh, you're, it's very, very, very deep information that you're providing, and I think that businesses can really have a, a good understanding as to their audiences and, and positioning and why it's really important to to do that. And um, so where should they go uh, if they come to SparkToro? Is there a specific section of the site that they should go to for a demo or for sign up or what should they be doing? <laughs> I mean, so this is the wild part, Matt. There, only three of us work at SparkToro. It's a tiny, tiny little company. Uh, we don't do demos. So if you if you email us and you ask for a demo, you'll you'll get a reply from usually myself or Amanda or Casey. It'll be like, sorry, we don't do demos, but here's a bunch of you know videos and resources you can watch. Um, exactly. If you end up signing up for an account, of course, we'll, you know, walk you through or onboard you or whatever, but, uh, the best place, the best thing you can do, I I hope this is true, right? That essentially we have about 75,000 people who use the free version of SparkToro. If you go to the homepage and you just run some searches and you find the data valuable, it's, it's free. it's, It's a forever free account. You don't have to put in a credit card. It's not a free trial or anything like that. If you find that valuable, you can just keep using that. Um, and if you want, there's like some upgrade, you know, options, of course, as well. But um, that that would be the thing I I suggest folks do. And then, yeah, if you want to follow along as I rant about marketing strategy and what's happening with attribution and measurement and all that kind of stuff, uh, the SparkToro blog is is a great place to do that. You can you can get that email and not any of our other emails if you want. Fantastic, fantastic. Well, thank you so much once again. I really really appreciate the time you've spent with us. Yeah, my pleasure, Matt. Thanks for having me. All right. Fantastic. You have a great night. Yeah, you too. Take care. Take care. Are you ready to break through to accelerate online business growth? Then join our email list at emjpodcast.com so we can keep you up to date with the latest strategies, tips, and tricks that you'll want to know. Also, please don't forget to subscribe to the podcast so you never miss an episode. This is the EMJ Podcast with Matt Hepburn, and we'll see you next time.